This podcast is brought to you by Zalando, the official sponsor for Copenhagen Fashion Week 2022. Go to zalandogreenhouse.com to find out more. Welcome to the Vogue Business Podcast. Pasta Circularity, Rethinking the Fashion Model, supported by Zalando. I'm your host, Lucy McGuire, Trends Editor at Vogue Business. Now, every year, millions of tons of clothes are produced, worn and thrown away. And the equivalent of a rubbish truck full of clothing is burned or sent to landfill every second, according to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. In response, the fashion industry is working towards a more circular model, closing the loop to reduce the amount of clothing being produced from new resources and extending the life of clothing after it's been used. In this episode, I'm excited to speak to two of Copenhagen's most interesting young brands who are finding great ways to create and scale circular fashion systems. I'm joined by Amelie rogehova Gertsen, founder of Danish knitwear brand A. Rogehova, and Simon Wick, co-founder and creative director of Danish fashion brand Division. Also joining the conversation is Laura Coppin, head of circularity at Zalando, to help us understand how bigger retailers can support smaller brands with their circular mission. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Thank you, Lucy. Happy to be here. Thank you. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you guys here. Now, first off, I wanted to understand sort of where you guys are in the process of building a more circular fashion label. So if you could each briefly talk me through your brand's approach and process. I'm starting with you, Emily. Yeah, I think, um, first off, um, building a new brand, some of the things are, I don't want to say given, but I think putting into words what we do actually uh, also help us kind of understand where you know we are in the process because... I think it's been quite natural for us to have a very circular design process because from a textile point of view, we are so used to creating every little thing we need to use or see. So it's quite natural for us to really um, save and like preserve the things we create because then we can kind of like me remake, rework uh, because we never really have a big stock of anything. So I think... Um, for what we're doing now in terms of what we really want to do in the future. Of course, there's a long way, but I think um, what we're focusing most on now is to really incorporate some of the things we're doing in our little studio in Copenhagen at our manufacturers. Um, but I think it's also really interesting kind of talking with all of our partners in terms of how we can, in the end, have our products brought back to us because we are really in a process of thinking how um, in terms of longevity of our products how we can kind of like complete the circle in that part and I think um, yeah it's really exciting but also super challenging yeah absolutely and I can imagine so as you scale as well which I'm sure we can we can come on to later and and Simon do you want to talk me through divisions process and how you guys built into build a circular model um, yeah yeah as Amelia said like starting out I think it was a given for us as well that like starting a brand and yeah in our case in 2018 it was like uh it's given that like we should do it in a more circular or like responsible way at least and our take on it was was to work with pre-existing materials where um yeah the first collections we did were actually made from already made garments so we would rework or upcycle as we have grown we have evolved into you know working with pre-existing fabrics so so we don't like feel you know compromised in, in what we can do we're in the process of you know trying to take the, the ideology of working with pre-existing materials in as many ways as possible and see how we can yeah, kind of grow it into a, 
yeah, a larger scale business and like uh, not compromising on our core values as, as we do it. And when you say that you've sort of changed your approach, is that because it's, it's difficult to produce the volumes from, you know, from how you started out with using certain vintage garments? Yeah, exactly. So, so when we started out, like everything we did was, you know, in the end, one of one pieces or unique pieces. And that can uh, become a problem fast. Um, if you're working with big retailers, online retailers, like uh, creating unique garments is not always, you know, the ideal product for them since they would buy larger quantities and they wouldn't be able to shoot, you know, 20 of the same style because there could be some, you know, small differences in all, all of the styles. So it was common for us to, to go over to, to you know, work with Deathstock Fabrics because then we could, could produce a larger amount of the same garment without... um with following the same ideology but like like making it better for for the retailers as well and yeah just with the the quantities on dead stock fabrics that's a whole nother topic that's a that's also a challenge there's a lot of challenges <laughs> we can definitely come on to that one after and yeah. it's, it's interesting what you say about the retailers because um i know i've spoken to so many brands that operate in a in a circular way using upcycling and create one of a kind and it's it's this idea of being able to merchandise it right because people want to see exactly what they're going to get and so if you've got, you know, a hundred one of a kind items that are totally different, it's really hard to, to merchandise uh, online specifically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now, Laura, can you tell me about where Zalando is in the process of building a more circular fashion business? Yeah, sure. So we launched our first circularity strategy in February 2021. And since then, we've been building a team of circular experts. We've been launching several initiatives to demonstrate action and we've started to embed circularity across our business. We also launched our circularity strategy externally last October, where we also ignited several new initiatives. So our strategy is designed holistically, uh, looking at all stages of the product lifecycle, with an aim to, of course, redesign the fashion system. And in the design and manufacture stage, which is where products start in, in the production process, we know that around 80 to 90 percent of the environmental impact is created there. So um, we recently launched our industry first circular design criteria in partnership with Circular Fashion, which is built off of three guiding principles from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So firstly, that products are designed with safe, recycled or renewable inputs. They're designed to last longer, so they have technical durability built into them. And lastly, that the products can actually be recycled at the end of their useful life. And why we've done this is that we really want to support our brands. So we have 6,000 brands that sell um, on Zalando. And we really want to support them in their circular journey as well. So our circular design criteria is for our brands and our private labels to really start to think about the product design and development process. And in the end, those products will lower the environmental impact and they will also last longer so they can be resold multiple times and we know that those items can then be recycled again. And in the next stage is obviously when customers own a product, which is what we call the use stage of our circularity strategy. So this is when a customer owns a product. So how they use, maintain their products, clean them, repair them. And we support um, our end customers with care and repair advice. And we created some 
cool tips and tutorial videos together with UK-based Clothes Doctor. And we also offer our customers an array of cleaning and maintenance products on our fashion store. And last October, when we launched our strategy, we kicked off a pilot in Berlin where we offer customers care and repair services. So let's say you have a broken zip or you have a tear in your jeans or you have scuffed shoes. Uh, we've identified local partners who can help repair and restore your most loved items. And Zalando, we will pick up those items at a convenient time using e-vehicles and we will drop those items back off at our customer's doorstep, restored to be worn and loved all over again. And the aim of this um, service is to provide a one-stop shop for all of our customers' care and repair needs at the convenience of just a few clicks. The reuse stage, um, we have been running our e-commerce business for a few years now, where we have our pre-owned category in the fashion store, where customers can trade in items for resale, and we currently have 500,000 items in stock for customers to buy pre-owned items. And in the final stage of our circularity strategy, which is what we call the closing the loop stage, which is where products um, get recycled, which of course is the absolute last thing that products um, should have. We should make sure that we keep products at their highest value for as long as possible before reaching this recycling stage. Um, but of course we need an end of life solution. So we have been identifying the most promising recycling technologies in the industry and we've been investing in partners. So last year we invested in Infinited Fibre Company, a Finnish recycler, and also Ambercycle, a US recycler. And Infinitive Fibre Company recycles cellulosic, or cotton and viscose-based products, and Ambercycle um, recycles polyester products. And with these investments, we really aim to scale up the amount of recycled materials that enter the design and manufacture stage so that our brands and our private labels have materials to design and manufacture products with that are inherently more sustainable and are made from previous textile items. So our strategy aims to tackle every single stage of the product life cycle and we really aim to support our customers in changing their behaviours. We also aim to support our brands in accelerating their circular efforts as well. And Emily, when it comes to Aerogohova, you know, you launched in 2019, so a year after Division. How has your approach to sourcing changed as the brand has grown and developed? I think, I mean, when I started out, I really didn't know much else that, you know, I just really loved to knit and I was super curious about, you know, just exploiting the, the handcraft to the fullest. And I think some of these things and interests have been really valuable to just be quite stubborn to kind of hold on to, because I think the tricky part is also meeting like um, a lot of manufacturers and factories that are used to working in a different way, because um, obviously brands like us very much meet a lot of factories that are used to working very high pace. Um, lowering prices and a lot of these things that we actually we're not working towards it but I mean I would never really compromise with the way it's made then I think the bigger task is educating the one buying it in the end because of course it's always like a, a loop of you know we can feel strongly for something we do but in the end I guess for for all small brands it still need to be a business because we really need to fight to 
to keep on doing what we're doing because I think it is really important. But I guess what what we are facing the most is that the way that we produce some of the things in the beginning, we could wait for the machine to knit a dress that took an hour and a half. But now if we need to make more dresses, we need, you know, we've been changing some of the ways we produce it. So we still knit everything in shape. I mean, we don't have any cotton sew. And for us, it's so important that we only produce what's already ordered. So we don't order any yarn before anyone placed the order. And then we don't really knit anything that's not ordered. So, of course, it's also a longer process to produce products. And that's, I mean, also a little bit of a tricky task in terms of retailers. But I think there's nothing better when you can kind of feel like more people are concerned about this now. And I feel like there's a great support from the industry in general to change. So there's hope for sure. Definitely. And in terms of convincing factories to work in a very certain way, you know, to not use cut and sew and to shape in the machines, how did you do that? How did you convince suppliers to, you know, develop and adapt to this new way of working? I mean, for me, it's been all about, of course, I, I don't believe that I have to be the best at everything. But for me, it's really been, it's been super important for me to know the craft really well. So every time you face a challenge, I would have something to bring to the table and say, I think if we change this stitch, if we change this tension, we can improve the product. Of course, I met a lot of like uh, stubborn people <laughs> that were like, you don't know. But I think that's that's really been like the key thing. And that's also why I think, I mean, I'm so much into knitting and the craft. And I think these skills also just show themselves to be really valuable now because this is the only way I can you know, improve a product that's being made in Ireland or Italy because of course we can go there but I can't be there like every time a new sample comes off the machine. So for me it's just been really important to, you know, be able to do it myself but also being really aware of this transition from me making it in my studio at the machines to, you know, it's completely different machines they're using but really just getting like the, the knitting lingo so I can... Um, so I can improve it. And I think that's really something that's been, I mean, I didn't really know how important it was until I could kind of like see the result of me fighting for one stitch to change. Yes. Even though it sounds super geeky. No, not at all, not at all. And I think it's interesting as well that when brands get to that point where you then have to put trust into suppliers, you know, maybe not even in the same country as you. That's like, that's a real moment in growth that must be quite difficult as a founder, especially when you've got, you know, certain processes and you do things in a really specific way to reduce reduce the waste and and Simon in terms of your approach have you have you met resistance at certain points in in the scaling and the growth process when it comes to you know wanting to use certain fabrics oh definitely um I think what has been the biggest challenge for us and like the biggest yeah yeah the, where I've met like the largest resistance is that we work a lot with upcycling still and patchworks especially where we would take you know pre-made garments and patchwork a, a fabric out of that actually and then uh, and getting you know the factories to do that for us and that whole process it's like yeah it's been really really uphill because like it's not something they're used to it's complicated and it's like it's not you know cost efficient on their side so it's been really about finding you know the right partners that really wanted the best and evolve it so we we met resistance definitely in that area um also just you know working with dead stock fabrics often comes at the price that there isn't that many you know meters left for example so that means low quantities and 
uh, low quantities can also be an obstacle for, for a lot of factories, especially like for our point of view, we're pretty like price conscious and not we don't try to, to have a too high price because we have a pretty young crowd in our community but buying our stuff. So something that I'm very aware of and, you know, getting low quantities at lower prices is not always easy. So it's really, there's a lot of steps um, that's been super hard, but I feel like it's getting better and better. Um, we are def- we are meeting new suppliers and factories that are willing to, 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 to take more chances with us now. I think the factories often, they, they can see it's, that's the way that we're going and the, the industry is changing. So, but where it might have been, you know, a, an obstacle that they didn't even bother to think about. Now they can see, oh, this might be one of like how the future is looking. And we got to develop on these areas of, as well to get to, to be the best at it and like to be able to, to follow the market. So yeah, but there's been obstacles, but um, it's definitely getting better in, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And when coming back to this idea of, you know, there not being enough dead stock or enough meters of a certain type of fabric, what do you do when you face with that situation? Will you create like different skews with different different rolls of fabric, slightly different, but in the same style? How do you combat that as a brand that's growing as international stockists? Exactly. So first of all, we, we've actually been super lucky in buying fabrics. Um kind of like hitting around the, the order like most of the time but how we counter it is yeah as you're saying like for a certain style we would just do a lot of colorways or like a lot of skews of you know this the same for our bumper jacket for example which is like our most popular product we just counted all the colorways we, we did over the last few years um the other day and it's over 40 colorways on one jacket which is a lot, you know, because that's how we counter it. So sometimes when we produce a jacket, there's only like 30 units, but sometimes there's 200 units. So it's like uh, depending. So that's a good way for us to counter it, like working with a lot of options. So also just working with a lot of the same like patterns to reach the quantities as well for, for our suppliers. Like so we can stack, you know, the same style. Um, it has the same pattern. So it's like a lot of, yeah, skews um, made on the same pattern. So it's a good way for us to counter it. Also just using it as a advantage, both for us and uh, the retailers that we work with. Low quantities also means that it becomes more exclusive, your products. So let's say we, we find a fabric and we can only produce 30 of them. We would be able to sell that in as an exclusive um, for a certain store. They wouldn't have to worry about, you know, big sales for, for, for the store, next store, you know. So it's like it's it's a win-win situation. That's how we always try, try to see it. It also means like some products, are, like you, you take a chance, you don't, really don't know like how it's going to go. But I guess that's how it is always making a product and making a buy for, for a retailer. Yeah, it's so interesting that you can use these limited quantities and limited runs with factories to your advantage and actually use it, you know, to work with retail partners on exclusivity and build demand. I think that's that's such an exciting way to, to work with, you know, more sustainable practices and make them work for you. And Laura, of course, you come at this from a slightly different perspective, working with, as you said, six over 6,000 brand partners at Zalando. From your perspective, what challenges can smaller or emerging brands face when they're trying to scale in a more circular way? I think the challenges that smaller brands face is that it is costly to start a sustainability strategy, sustainability product journey, and to invest in circular design. So, you know, designers need to be upskilled and trained in circular design. You need to have certifications for products to be able to make sure you validate your sustainability claims for the material or the finished product. 
and it's pretty hard to access um, recycled materials today because they're not necessarily scaled just yet. So I think both from a cost perspective, but also from an accessibility perspective, it can be particularly challenging for smaller brands. And, and Laura, I know you've touched on this a little bit already, but if I could just come back to you here, how can retailers really support and help particularly smaller brands to sort of maintain and scale circular sourcing and production processes? So we provide all our brands with sustainability criteria, which gives them a framework for what products qualify for being more sustainable. And the criteria that we develop and update on an annual basis is aligned with industry standards and available certifications in the industry. That gives us the brands and our private labels a foundation to work with. We also provide webinars, trainings, and direct consultations on our sustainability criteria with the aim that we jointly scale the amount of products that meet our minimum standards and for our end customers that they can access a wider assortment of products uh, that meet that sustainability framework. And we have currently around 180,000 products on our fashion store which is the largest um, sustainable assortment for a fashion retailer in Europe. And we're continuing to scale that assortment and we're continuing to raise the bar with our sustainability criteria. And we really believe that this um, criteria really supports our brands with the foundation of the claims that they want to make on products and elevating their own assortment and believing that their products are credible when it comes to a sustainability point of view. And maybe just to mention one other aspect um, for how we support our brands. So in July, we teamed up with Uke's Knitter-Porter and About You um, with a learning platform to help our brand partners set science-based targets to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And as mentioned a bit earlier, we also introduced our circular design criteria on Earth Day earlier this year. So that sort of elevates the sustainability criteria to the next level which considers the entire product life cycle for our brands to raise the bar with us. And um, in terms of your output I know that you were talking about earlier you were mentioning that it can be difficult because you can only produce a certain amount and now that you know you're getting bigger orders it's hard with timings. How do you work with retail partners in order that they understand that? Do you have to have sort of special terms when it comes to order sizes and and the timings that it will take you to produce an order, for example? Yeah, I think, I mean, in the beginning, I really, I guess I didn't really have a clue about like what it actually meant in terms of being able to knit it and deliver it. But I think now we're at a point where, of course, we do try to create some terms where they are aware of why the situation is as it is. But I think it's just as much for us to just become better at planning, having more like a full wheel of the year, because what we kind of figured out is that we do have a longer production time. So for us, it's quite valuable to knit a little bit, but all year round. So instead of like completely having big amounts two times a year, it's better for us to have a little bit um, of production going, you know, all year round, because we have some styles that are just a much longer process than others so for us it's actually just been kind of figuring out okay if we do want to deliver to some of these like major retailers 
who might or might not always wanna, um, you know, just accept all terms, then it's really about, okay, how can we still make it happen? But of course, it's also, I mean, so much of our design is really also improving like a previous design. So I think this process has been really valuable because then we can, like, we have these styles that we can constantly just improve tiny things, but it's also the ones that are working really well in, you know, all of the stores. So we can still have this base of products where our factories knows them really well, the customers also, but it's more like improving minor things. And then we have this add-on on, you know, of new developments, new silhouettes and these things. So I think it's about how we build the collection, about how we place, you know, our production orders, you know, yearly. But of course, also having this dialogue with the stores, because I think today they're also more used to people. Simon is doing patchwork and deadstock. And I mean, we all come from so many different, it's not really like we just buy, you know, a meter and then we cut and sew and send. So I think they are much more open to, you know, meeting people are doing businesses in, in, in different way. But it's definitely been a process for me to also realize it's okay we do it in a different way and don't really have to like fit into a box. We can also kind of fight a little bit to do it in our own way. So I think that's, it's nice, you know, now that we've been doing a little bit more collections that we are a little bit more confident in just believing that that is okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so interesting as well, because I think a few years ago, being an emerging brand and taking a different approach meant that you could only maybe reach a certain level of growth just because the retailers couldn't accept anything that was slightly different. But it's great to hear that, you know, that is a possibility now, but it is just about maybe adapting your processes slightly so that you're able to, to meet the volumes and grow it slowly and steadily in a way that works for you. And, and Simon, when it comes to your, you know, building division and scaling division, I know you have a lot of international stockists. How do you work with them and how can they sort of, how can they really help you in, in building this business and, and meeting the demand that's growing around the world for it? That's a good question. I feel like the most important thing just in general with doing what we're doing is um, being a small emerging brand. You, you don't have that much power on all ends. Like, yeah, production, as we talked about, marketing, like being able to communicate and like everything around your brand. But having, you know, a lot of international retailers really it helps us um, like kind of validating what we're doing and, and making it possible for us to yeah, go the direction that we want. And, and in terms of the, the retails that you work with, have you ever had situations where it is, you know, maybe difficult to make, make the terms of an order and they've sort of been understanding and, and adapted how they worked with you? Yeah, I feel like from when we started, it's quite funny. From when we did our first season, we were working with, you know, a lot of, you know, smaller like concept stores many of them being in South Korea. They love, you know, the concept of buying unique one-of-ones. I think we had seven retailers on the two first seasons in South Korea, and they loved the, the one-of-ones, like all the unique products. Um, but as we switched over to doing like more, you know, like larger quantities at, you know, with Deadstock Fabrics and stuff like that, some of them fell through. So it's like um, there's a different demand on what you're doing depending on the retailer. So that's like um, finding the, the balance in, in both parts is like the hard part for us, I think. Also, we do have, you know, these, we could call them our couture pieces being, you know, these amazing, unique products we still work with. Um, but they're at a much higher price point than the rest of our products. So they can sometimes be a little tough to sell for, for the retailers. I think the, the it's hard, you know, just finding that sweet spot where, where you can do both. Because, you know, being an emerging brand, you got to realize that 
well, for some you can, but you you're not like Magella, um, that can do like the assistant like pieces and sell them for like even though you wanted to and still have you know the more like commercial pieces at the same time. Well, it is possible. We try to do the same because we love doing it. But I feel like it can be a challenge for for us sometimes, like finding that sweet spot. Yeah, I think that's a challenge for so many emerging brands who, you know, I think it's always finding those commercial pieces that will fund the hyper-creative pieces in a way. But it is, like you say, it's a sweet spot. And I think often brands can get it wrong where they come straight out of the gate and they do this amazing conceptual work. But unless they're making some T-shirts or some like carryover pieces or listening to what sells, then it just it burns too bright and then can't last. So I think that's a that's a really great approach to take. You know, having having both sides. Or, or Emily, in your case, you know, having those styles that you know work well and, and updating and improving them every season as well as the newness. Yeah, and actually, I mean, we, I mean, I started out making the bags, which are now a more commercial piece in a way. And then it kind of evolved from that. So I guess, you know, the process and starting point can really be quite different. But it is nice to feel like we can service a lot of different customers that, you know, all can have a little piece of what we do. And I wanted to talk about communication. Because I know when it comes to sustainability and circularity, brands take such different approaches on communicating it, or not communicating it at all. For all of you, how do you approach storytelling on circularity? Amelie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I honestly, I think the communication part is hard because for me, as a person, it's, I guess it's not really that natural for me to to show what I do in, in that sense. I mean, it's very easy to me to kind of talk about like knit and the techniques and what I think about our products and how they should fit and all these things. But I think the communication of what we do that's really great at the factories and all these things have been difficult because I think it is super important. And I always, I always really enjoy this, you know, when other brands do it because I feel like I get to know them better. But I think for me, it's also having this feeling of, you know, we need like this expert knowledge in terms of saying anything, because I think the biggest mistake is really if people get too afraid to talk about what they do, because they're afraid that, you know, people will judge them. And I think for me, it's been a little bit of a process realizing that um, it's better that we just kind of lay out what we do, because I know what we do and I'm proud of what we do and how we do it. But I think I I had this I had this idea that you know we, that we needed uh, to have like the right language to tell it somehow. Our main ideology is to create from pre-existing materials, which is pretty easy to understand. It doesn't take that much. And starting from a point like where we would create upcycled unique pieces, it was very easy to tell that it was upcycled. So we try to like embed it like our communication into actually the styles so we have a, like a kind of a raw look um, on a lot of our styles that actually and we'd like to work with raw edges and like on all our denim like they look vintage and stuff like that so we actually first like one of the way that we communicated is that we try to make our clothes look a bit used which makes it easier if you you if you understand like what the, the the core value of the brand is it's super easy to connect that that it's pre-existing right 
but some might get fooled. Like if we have a shirt hanging in a store and it's two colorways, so we we and we color blocked it in two different fabrics. Some people would might think, um, oh, this is two shirts sewn together because you know they produce from pre-existing materials. But it's not. But some of the pieces are. But you know, it's kind of like the the communication is kind of in the brand and in the styles, and that's how we try to to work. Um, we also try to just be very transparent in everything we do, explaining the process of yeah how we, we make the things that we do. And like if we make some things that are not um, as sustainable as we think it should be, we try to communicate that as well. Having the message embedded into the style of the clothing is, is really interesting. And Laura, what advice would you give to brand partners when it comes to communicating circularity and sustainability? I think it's really important to be honest and humble about the stage that the fashion industry is at when it comes to circularity and sustainability. As mentioned, we really are just at the beginning and it's a very complex shift that we are trying to do, you know, to change the way products are designed, to change customer behaviours, to get products back to be recycled, to resell products, to rent products. I mean, this is a completely different mindset shift. So. It's not going to happen overnight. It isn't happening overnight. And we need to be honest to the world when we communicate that this is really, really difficult. Um, But that doesn't mean that we're not going to try and push and raise the bar. And we need to continue to communicate our efforts because we need to change customer behaviours. We need to also ensure that what we put out into the world is understandable, relatable, convenient, And I think it's really important to make a sustainable lifestyle fun, creative and inspiring. I think sustainability, secularity, very complex topics. And I think it can almost feel a bit intimidating or a burden in some ways. And it doesn't have to be that way. It can be fun. It can be cool. It can be fashionable. And I think it's really important that we communicate in such a way that we empower consumers and we empower brands to to take that challenging step forwards to change behaviours, change the linear system. And I think at the same time when we are communicating, we need to you know, check ourselves and be cautious about how we are communicating, what the narrative is and what, what behaviour we want to see being changed. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting what you say because, you know, maybe we were in a place even five years ago, definitely 10 years ago, where there were certain sustainable brands. And now I think we've definitely moved away from that in that, you know, most brands, as you mentioned, are endeavouring to be more circular and more sustainable. So I think the communication can shift slightly as well and be more brand specific and putting your own voice into the way that you communicate circularity in a way that works for you and your community. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, if brands aren't starting to sort of communicate about their sustainability and circularity efforts in the near future, they're going to need to because the EU is, you know, going to regulate sustainability claims, regulate circularity efforts. And I think that's a really positive step forwards, which we really strongly back the EU Commission's plans with the eco design regulations. Um, And I think being able to sort of translate regulations into actions and then therefore into desirable customer experiences is a really exciting challenge and a really exciting problem to solve. And one thing that the fashion industry is really good at is problem solving. So I think this is an exciting challenge for us all to be taking on board. And just one final question before we run out of time. So... 
look into the, I want to look into the future now. Um, looking ahead, what's next for you brands on your sort of paths to circularity? Are there new innovations that you're watching, new suppliers that you're thinking about, new ways of working that, you, that you're watching for the future? Uh, Emily, I'll come to you first. For us, something that's always in the future is really pushing the way we knit. So it's uh, both finding factories that have new technology in terms of knitting machines, and then it's also how we can push the one we already have to produce and knit um, in new ways. And I think this is really something where when we do meet up with them, like physical, then it's about discussing like how small changes can really change so much in terms of how we produce. And also, I really like what Simon said earlier on with, you know, kind of like using the same pattern for more things. For us, it's also building these systems of, it's not about creating an like entirely new product every time. It's really just about creating something that's better. So I think for us, we have so many ways of trying to divide our knit into how they can be made in the best way possible. And then the goal is really just to improve within those groups. And I think that's something that's quite easy for us to to measure because we we know where they are at and we know like what our factories can do. But of course, for me, looking into new machines and the technology is really super exciting. And then, of course, from our materials, I mean, we are at a stage where we are ready to open up a little bit more because we only have been doing like one material composition for everything we do, which have been so nice in so many ways. But also now we do want to test a lot of different materials but with the principle of the production of what we already do pushing our, our design a little bit so yeah I think, I think it's great as well you know I asked what innovations you're watching but actually you know being so specialized actually you're kind of producing those innovations yourself almost acting like a lab that's thinking about new ways of doing things in knitwear so that's really encouraging <laughs> to see that you know you can do you can actually you don't have to just be watching outside but you can be testing and learning all the time internally too for sure <laughs> that's really my goal <laughs> <laughs> yeah Simon, what about you? For us, um, yeah, we're also, yeah, we're constantly looking for innovations that makes it possible for us to do that, the upcycling that we have always done, but do it at a, first of all, at a scalability where it makes sense and the price point as well. And like some of the things that we're looking at is actually what we're doing with, uh, yeah, one of Pizarro, as we talked about. So they have a lot of clients that they produce from, and mostly denim jeans. So if those denim jeans don't sell super well, the clients would send them back to Pizarro and they would like kind of upcycle the product and then sell it again. One of the processes they're doing is cutting off the legs. So they have a lot of leg tubes. Um, those leg, leg tubes are, you know, a leftover product from an upcycling process. And they're like perfect for us. It's, it's just what we need, you know. It's a lot of like flat layers of denim that we can easily patchwork into to, to doing with whatever we want. And it's like upcycling of an upcycling product. So it's like a... It's like double circularity. So, so we're kind of like looking into innovations like that and looking for partners that we can do that with. Um, we're also like working with other partners on developing fabrics because we know that's also something we might have to do in the future, but do it in the, in the best way possible. So we're working with our Renew Cell right now on developing, you know, it's our lining for our bumper jacket because, you know, sometimes having a different lining on all jackets, it can be a problem sometimes because... That's just something we experienced. So, so developing the lining with the Renew Cell uh, and Circulus to, to create a what they basically do as 
you know, they, they, they have found a way to, you know, break down cotton so you can use it to, to produce new garments, like quickly spoken. And, you know, developing fabrics with partners like that, allowing us to, to kind of grow uh, our company without compromising. Another, some other innovations that we're looking at is also the idea of buyback of your garments. For us, it's actually like kind of a, a golden opportunity, we think, because we have been used to uh, buying vintage garments and upcycling them like always. <laughs> so that's basically what we're doing. So what we're doing now is actually we're starting the program next month, um, but buying like back our old stuff and just reworking it and selling it again. We did that like uh, with a retailer yeah, this past season. It was wasn't selling so well, so we actually just asked if, if we could just buy the whole order back, and we did. And we took all the stuff and we reworked it and we put it up for sale on our web shop and we sold everything uh, uh, as unique, you know, one of ones. So it's like it's a different approach. And I like that idea of like buying back, you know, your customers' old clothes instead of me. Actually, I'm kind of like countering uh, our own, you know, overstock in a new, like, uh, genuine way. Um, and we have been doing it, you know, with other brands doing collabs with their, like, overstock because, you know, it's what we like to do. And it's like, it's super approachable. So working with a lot of, like, different solutions from finding new innovations with the factories and suppliers that you're working with to, like, developing fabrics or just, like, looking at how can we counter our own, you know, overstock. So, Yeah. That's so cool that you bought back. <laughs> you bought back an order that you already sold and, and managed to sell it yourselves. And as you say, it's like upcycling, upcycling, which is a, it's just a really interesting concept. Exactly. Yeah, really amazing. <laughs> thank you. That is all that we've got time for today. But thank you so much to all of you for joining us. It's been such an interesting conversation, and I've, I'm definitely coming away with some new ideas around circularity and what it means for emerging brands. So thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you, Lizzie. This podcast is brought to you by Zalando, the official sponsor for Copenhagen Fashion Week 2022. Go to zalandogreenhouse.com to find out more.